0: You know, this week I had an interesting week. I guess it was Thursday. I got to go to a group called the Hall of Men. I've talked about it a number of times, and the presentation was done by a guy. It's very interesting. His name's Matthew Umberger. He's a professor, Dr. Umberger. He is a professor at Newman University, which of course is a Catholic uh, university, and he himself is Catholic. And he was doing a presentation on. The guy who started the Christian church, Campbell, I believe is his last name, and he did a presentation on him, and the reason it was so interesting was because Dr. Umberger actually grew up going to the Christian church. He grew up in an evangelical church. He went on to uh, Ozark Christian College is where he attended a a university, which is, of course, a Christian church. A Christian university, but then he went on some kind of missions trip. I don't know the whole story, and I don't want to get it all wrong. But he ended up deciding to convert to Catholicism. So now he is a higher critic Catholic, and so the presentation was quite interesting because he knew a lot about Campbell because he was so engulfed in it. But yet it was also interesting because at this point in his life he disagrees with him so sharply compared to what he did in the past, and the reason I think find this interesting today is today we're going to talk some about communion you know um, the, the Bible talks about communion in like a few different places but it never talks about it a lot in one place if that makes sense And so it's like when do I give the communion spiel okay and this morning we're going to get the communion spiel We're going to talk about what was going on in First Corinthians, what was happening there then we're going to, to talk about communion and then I'm going to kind of go on a plan bunny trail to talk about communion. And it's interesting because of what Dr. Umberger presented on Thursday night fits in really well with what we're going to discuss and the differences and what we believe about communion. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 10, starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So he's talking to the Corinthians. He's telling them they need to flee idolatry. He says, I speak to sensible people judge for yourselves what I say, he might be being just a little ironic here. Do you remember what he says about them at the beginning? I mean, chapter one's getting to be a long way away now, right? Chapter 10, where are weeks and weeks, months passed from chapter one. But remember how they talked about how they thought they were wise and the wisdom of the world and so on and so forth? So this term sensible, he actually might be kind of... Uh, kind of making fun of him a little bit. Maybe not. I mean, it's hard to know sarcasm, especially when you're a couple thousand years removed, but it seems like he might be here like, hey, you guys think you're all smart. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of of Christ. So he's going to start addressing this idea of communion and he'll do it even more later in 1 Corinthians and we'll talk about it then and we'll talk about something else. But as I think this is a really good time to talk a little bit about the details of communion because of the terminology says, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not the participation in the body of Christ? So, What does it mean to participate in the body of Christ? What does it mean to participate in the blood of Christ? Well, if we would ask someone who's Catholic, you would get a very different answer than if you ask me. If you ask someone who's Lutheran, you would get another answer. If you ask someone who's Reformed, you would get another answer. And it gets very confusing. So the monthly question, I'm not sure how many of you watched it this particular month when I said it on the email. It will come out on Facebook today. But it was the question of someone like how do we explain, and she's Lutheran, she says, how do we explain to a Catholic why we only have two sacraments? How do you explain to a Catholic why we only have two sacraments? This is a really hard question to answer. You know why? Because Baptists don't have any sacraments at all. Okay? They don't have any. And let me explain why. So the history of how this all started with the sacraments, communion and whatnot. It started out early on and they started using this term sacrament. And we think it was like by Tertullian, I think I mentioned this in the video at about 200 AD is around the time that he lived. He started using this term sacrament. And lots of things became sacraments. Prayer might have been a sacrament. There were like the, the biggest list we know of is like 45 different sacraments. Okay? And so because these different people were calling different things sacraments. It got really confusing what a sacrament was. so in the Middle Ages they really started they're like we're gonna narrow this down. What really is a sacrament? I mean in the Middle Ages the church and the government kind of became like the single thing. the church had a ton of power. they just threatened to excommunicate the Pope or the Pope would threaten to excommunicate them or kick out the whole country from the church, send them all to hell so therefore they were getting a lot of power so they kind of needed to clean up the rack. So they go okay, We really need to find these. So they actually brought it down to seven. But the definition of what made something go into the seven is what's really interesting. What made something count as one of the seven sacraments? And that's this. It's not just that this act signifies something. It doesn't just represent something. It also sanctifies. It also sanctifies. It actually does something for you. It provides you with grace. That if you wouldn't have done that act, you would have never received that grace. Means of grace, sometimes it is called. So, one of the most interesting ones is marriage. So, the Catholic Church has a sacrament of marriage. And so they would say, when you get married, you get a special means of grace. God gives you extra grace That you wouldn't have had without getting married, and that grace allows you to have a marriage that's really wonderful, and you get, you know, it serves God, and so on and so forth, and allows you to live in a happy marriage. Um, Divorce rates don't seem to, you know, coincide with that particularly super well, but that's the theory, that that's what this grace provides you. So they would say there's seven different things that provide you grace. So when Martin Luther came along, Martin Luther splits from the Catholic Church, but he doesn't split quite as hard as some people might think. So he still thought there were sacraments. He didn't think there were seven. He thought like marriage was made up and holy orders wasn't right and so on and so forth, but he thought sacraments still existed. He still thought that there was things that you could do that gave you grace. And they were baptism and communion. And so if you wanted the grace of God, you could come take communion and receive that grace of God. Now, he looked at it a little bit different than Catholics. Catholics kind of look at it this way. When they take communion specifically, they say something like this. When the priest comes and he gets behind the table or however they do it, and he says these particular words, the bread turns into the body of Christ. Literally, it is the body of Christ. And when the cup gets blessed, it turns into the blood of Christ. So I always use the example, if you've heard me talk about this before, it's my favorite example of how this works. There was a communion bread that was blessed that was in a car on its way somewhere, like to going to the nursing home or somewhere to give someone communion, and they had a wreck. And the bread was strewn about the road. So then the nuns had to come and pick up every single piece they could possibly find of the bread because it had been blessed by the priest. It had turned into the body of Christ. And so you take, as a matter of fact, the Catholic Church goes so far as you can go to the Catholic Church during the week. I don't, I'm sure everyone's this way, but I've been to a Catholic Church, they have it. And they have the leftover bread actually sitting in like this container thing, and you can pray to it because you're praying to Christ. Like I said, I don't know if every Catholic Church does it exactly that way or not. But so Martin Luther's like, okay, not only do I not think there's seven, I think there's two but I still think it's a means of grace, and I still think it's the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, kind of. He sort of redefined it. He said, I think it's still 100% bread, but it's also 100% body at the same time. Both. So they use words like in, with, and under. Okay? Okay? The presence of Christ, or something like that, is there. They use these different terminology. It's like we can't possibly understand the Trinity—three and one doesn't make any sense. Also, we cannot understand the mystery of communion and how it's both bread and body, at the, uh, bread and body of Christ at the same time. And so, when we take that, we actually get special grace. Now, it gets confusing because, as a Baptist, you might say something, like, "No, it's all about faith," and they go, "Yeah, yeah, you gotta have faith." I mean, they think. You have to have faith while you're taking it, so it gets kind of confusing, but you still get grace when you, when you take it, all right? Then you have the Reformed church, so this would be like John Calvin, See, so this would be like Presbyterian and different Reformed things. They, they took it a little step further, okay? They don't think it's 100% body and 100% bread, but they still would say Christ is in there somehow, and they would, might describe it something like a mystery, Okay? And I think they might be the ones that use the term real presence more often. So they still believe that there's sacraments, that you are receiving grace, that you are getting something when you take communion and when you do baptism. So this idea of getting grace is interesting. So for example, I knew someone who was Catholic who had a had a friend or a relative or a cousin or whatever. It was. Oh, my baby got baptized on Easter by the bishop. So like, my kid got even extra super grace because they were getting grace because they were baptized anyway, but then the bishop did it, and then they did it on Easter. And somehow, to them, in their theology, this means this baptism was probably more grace-filled than someone else's, which seems bad to me, but that's kind of how they would view it. So, the Presbyterians, the Reformed, the Calvin, they still believed that there was some kind of sanctifying work within community. They're closer. So if you went to a Presbyterian church and listened to how they did communion, I'm guessing it would seem less, you know, less weird, if, or more, more what we're used to, to, to call it. Weird is probably not a nice word. It would be more what we're used to. But then the tradition of like Zwingli, which is what the Baptists kind of adopted, we kind of went and said, no, no, no. It's not the body of Christ at all. It's just bread the whole time. There's no real presence. There's no special thing going on there. When the, when the pastor or whoever says the magic words, nothing happens, nothing transforms. No magical thing goes on. It's just still bread, and it signifies something, and we take it as a memorial to remember. And... um. I actually don't even, we sometimes call it the memorial view. I don't almost don't like the word memorial because we don't just look back, right? We also look forward. You know, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, so it's more than just looking back. I think communion also is a time to look forward. So kind of calling it the memorial view, I'm I'm not super opposed to it. I just wouldn't use that because it kind of signifies only one half of it, and I would argue that there's two. So these are how these kind of things develop. So then, then Baptists, we don't have any sacraments at all. Now, Baptists for a long time still actually used the term sacrament. They just didn't mean the same thing. But then they started using this word called ordinance. And, and then by the end, like the 1900s, they pretty much solidified. They only used the word ordinance. And then as time went on, usually Baptists became quite against using the word Sacrament at all, and its ordinance. And so, if you went to seminary like Dr. Mac and I did, I'm guessing he had a similar experience as I. We do not call them sacraments. No way. We call them ordinances. Like that was, you know, absolutely okay. And so, the reason why this is so interesting is when I go to Hall of Ben, you know, the guy talks, and all these really nice guys, and you know, we, you know, we all use these similar language, you know, t- talk in a similar way. We love Jesus and so on and so forth. So there's Catholics there, there's uh, Greek Orthodox and, and, and uh, Protestants there and whatnot. But when we think about ever doing anything more than like just going on and hanging out once one night a week and, you know, reading about some famous guy in church history, it gets really complicated. And one of the really big sticking points is, well, we could never take communion together And we could never do baptism together because we like totally view it completely differently. So at our church, if I were gone, I would say, oh, sure, Ron or Rob or Matt or whoever, someone else could come serve communion, right? I mean, we wouldn't have any like, I can't think of a theological objection why someone else couldn't. But when I was at the Methodist church filling in, this is very interesting. I didn't actually know they believed this until I, I, I filled in there for a little while. They have some kind of real presence view as well because I was not allowed to serve communion there as the guest preacher because I was not an ordained Methodist minister. I hadn't given, been given the secret sauce to be able to say the special words to turn it into whatever it is that it turns into. So what they did was they had someone else come in at the beginning of the month, say the special words over the bread and stuff, and then put it in the fridge, in the, in the cupboard, and then I could serve it because the special words had been said over it in order for it to turn into the special thing. Okay? And so at that point, things start getting very, very sticky. There's actually lots of other points that things get sticky as well, but that tends to be one. I you know, we, at Hall of Men, they'll be like, oh, it's so great, evangelicals, Catholics together, you know, Catholics, evangelicals, Protestants, whatever. And like, yeah, it's it's fine to get together, talk about things, Do you know, there's like, but man, it just, you don't get too far until it's like, yeah, we see this really, really differently, like very differently. So some people might um, accuse Lutherans or people that believe in a that in the real presence of Christ and the receiving of grace, they'd say, "Well, you think that all you have to do is take communion or get baptized and you get saved, okay?" That's probably not what you're going to hear one of them say. They're going to say you also need faith as well. It gets complicated. And then if you'd be like, "So if you do, if you decide you want to become a Christian, you didn't have time to get baptized, but you go to heaven," they'd probably say, "Yes, okay." So I don't want to characterize them, but they do see this grace and sanctifying nature in these uh, particular practices and therefore sometimes they would even say you need it for salvation or at least it's part of salvation or you should be doing it like if you're rejecting it then you're not going to save like my grandma's probably not really a good example of so, you know lutheran theology okay so she's not like a theologian but when my sister was born she did not get infant baptized in the lutheran church because my parents were attending a baptist church at that time and my grandma was really really worried that Michaela would not go to heaven because she had never been baptized. And when she got baptized, when she got older, grandma was okay, though also I'm still not that sure that makes sense because Kayla was baptized by just some pastor who didn't have the secret sauce of the blessing from the previous blah, blah, blah. So I'm not even sure why she considered that counting, but she did. Okay, So um, they do see some sort of real grace being given, and that manifests itself in a number of ways, and it gets complicated. But well, we as Baptists, we take what we usually call the memorial, That I don't particularly like that view, um, that we are not actually doing something that is uh, giving us grace or we're not turning the elements into something else. So then you say, is communion special to us? Okay, is communion special? So we might get accused by someone else by saying, well, you don't believe that they're sacraments, so you don't think communion is special like we do. And I would say, well, yes, in the sense we don't think anything magical happens, but it doesn't mean we don't think it's special, right? It doesn't mean we don't think it's very special and very important and very... Um, uh, a holy practice or something like that, okay? We think it's special. So we read this verse and it says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? This does kind of sound like the whole, the big word is transubstantiation or the Lutheran big word is consubstantiation, right? This kind of sounds like the body and the bread maybe are the same thing, kind of. Right maybe you can see how you go that way. All right if you're against it you're not going to see that but if you're for it you can see it more. But let's look, go on and look at the context here. It says in verse 17 because there is one bread who we are we are many are one we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. So who's the one bread? Christ, right? And we all partake of that one bread. Boy, this sort of sounds like maybe the bread really does you know, maybe, you know, sounds like, kind of sounds like it. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. So then, remember how last week we talked about how Israel was an example? So he goes back to, gives Israel an example, it says, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So in ancient Israel, they would... Have sacrifices, and what they do with the food after, like what they do with the animal that they killed, the priests and stuff would often eat it. They didn't just like throw it away. But I don't think anyone, at least I don't think, argues that when the priests of ancient Israel did something, did a sacrifice, that the animals that they sacrificed were turning into Jesus as they were doing it some kind of prefiguring of Jesus, but yet they still participated. Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? See, so many things in life are just symbols for something else. They stand for something else. So I like to use this example. I'll probably use it again later on. You, you, you throw a swastika up somewhere. There's nothing really like inherently wrong with black or inherently wrong with red or I'm not even sure there's anything inherently wrong with having it in that particular shape. What's, why does this swastika all make us, you know, because what it means, it means something. It means something. So did the sacrifices in the Old Testament, or the animals what matter? No. It's what it means. It means something. So these idols that they're going and the, the food that's offered to them when they go to the pagan temples, is the, is the food like, well, this is offered to a temple. This food has been changed in some sort of magical way. And now if I eat it, it's like, been somehow tainted all you have to do to untaint that food is take the meaning away take the connection away to the idols and suddenly that food goes from i probably shouldn't eat this to it doesn't matter so maybe there's a day thousands of years from today let's imagine that a swastika no longer means anything bad kind of hard to imagine but there will be people who American history and World War II is like such a small part of history class, they don't even have time to really get to it, and so they don't even know, and so maybe they accidentally start using it and they don't even realize. And guess what? It won't be bad because they don't know, because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean what it means to us today. Now, I imply that, pagan sac- that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So he's saying there is something behind the idol. There's a There's something that you're worshiping that's behind it, but not the idol itself. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So this is where this can get really, really confusing between generations and cultures. Generations and cultures. Because we often so closely associate what the thing represents... And, and so then, therefore, that thing becomes, like, inherently evil. So, for example, I've probably told this story before, but I think it illustrates it really well. I had this friend in high school who thought contemporary music was bad. Any kind of rock and roll, syncopated, you know, he had these particular rules, was bad, right? But he didn't just stop there. He said, a guitar... A guitar. Evil. Wait, wait, wait. You can play like classical music on a guitar. You can play whatever style you want. You don't have to strum it in the rhythm of accenting two and four and syncopated and whatnot. You can play it any style. No. The guitar is bad. You know... I really don't want a nuclear bomb blowing up like anywhere near me, but I'm not sure that means nuclear bombs are inherently evil in and of themselves. Are they evil? And so we need to be careful. And so when you have this gap, you know, long hair on guys, maybe it means something. Or maybe it doesn't mean anything right? Maybe it means something. Maybe it doesn't mean anything, unless you want to argue from 1 Corinthians 11, there's something inherently about there or whatever. But then it gets more complicated when you go to different countries. I've probably told this story too. The 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 place in Africa that the women don't wear shirts, but they will not wear open-toed shoes. Open-toed shoes means your saying something that a Christian should not say. And so, I think, in the case of communion, we've taken, so many denominations have taken the symbol. They've taken the symbol of the bread, the symbol of the wine, and they've taken it and they said, no, there's something in and of this itself. And they say the way it comes is by the priest or whoever coming up and blessing it. And this is something. And to me, it's the same principle as saying, well, anybody with a tattoo is like a bad person. Anybody with a wire rim glasses is bad. Those beetles, they were rough, you know, those wire rim glasses. Verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It is so true. We want to avoid things that are associated with evil. But this is what I would say. When you're talking to someone who's younger or or, or a different culture than you, you have to be really, really careful. Not to say, don't do that. If you just say, don't do that, and they don't understand, what are they going to do? They're gonna think you're an idiot, they're not gonna to listen to you, and they think you're just like, you know, buddy duddy, whatever. If you're in another country, they'll say stupid American, right? You have to say, when I see this, it makes me think of this. And this is why I would never do that. And, and, and maybe, maybe that other person can go, oh, well, I do it and I don't think of it. Maybe. But maybe they'll say, you know, I didn't know that's what it meant. Because sometimes people that are young don't realize, they don't realize that most of the adult world sees what they're doing and is associating with something evil. So they do need to be told, listen, everybody over the age of 15 seeing you do this thinks you, thinks you mean this bad thing. And the fact that all your 15-year-old friends don't see it that way doesn't mean that everyone else doesn't see it that way. So I'm not saying you don't correct someone who doesn't know, but what you cannot do is say, don't do that, it's bad. All you do is create a divide. You have to be able to explain the connection to the evil thing. And then you also have to realize that one day that connection won't be there anymore, and that's going to be really odd. It's going to feel really, really weird. And then it says in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, sometimes I think we we just want to rebel and we just want to do what we want to do and we come up with any reason. We go, oh, well, doing this is... (laughs) Find it. Find the verse in the Bible. Find the verse in the Bible. It's not in there. Find the verse in the Bible. Matt and I, Matt, we've talked about it. We can really relate, right? It's like... Teenager, you're like, you can't find the verse in the Bible. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And we become like so self centered, so thinking about us. We just want to do whatever we can to make ourselves happy. And then we say, if you can't find chapter and verse, it's okay. Listen, if we let go everything you can't find, chapter and verse 4, we're going to let a lot of bad things go, right? The Bible cannot list every evil thing, like, by name. It gives principles, right? It gives principles. It cannot list every sin it has to give. So therefore, when we get the idea that we just, if we can't find the exact chapter and verse, that it's okay. For example, what should you wear to church? So, worship team, should we have, you know, some worship teams have uh, dress codes. Choirs to have dress codes. Get, or they wore robes or, or they had dress codes, right? And it's like, you aren't clean shaven, you can't be in the choir, you know, you know whatever, you know? So I, I, I absolutely have a dress code for the worship team. You know what that is? Oh, you need to look look nice. You need to look nice. And can, could, could, could Alex come in here and say, Show me chapter and verse where I have to have taken a shower, that I have to have, you know, look myself somewhat presentable. There's no chapter and verse that says I needed to have put deodorant on this morning. I do not have it. They hadn't didn't have a deodorant back then, I don't have it. Right? And so if he just wanted to say, I'm gonna do whatever I want, because I can. What are we saying? I, 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 me, me, me. We no longer care about God; we care about ourselves, and we allow ourselves to associate with things that we shouldn't. Whether it's slothfulness, whether it's something really evil, or whatever. We care about me, 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 me. I want to do what I want to do. As we think about taking this communion this morning, I want us to think about this. When we take communion, we should be thinking, no, not me, 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 me. Who is it? Christ, 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 Christ. Less of me, more of Christ. I don't look at every choice I make on what's the most I can get away with. What's the, what's, if it's not chapter and verse, I'm going to do it. No, we say, I want to please Christ, so maybe I should put on some deodorant this morning. How about that? You know, that probably would be best because it's not about what I want to do; it's about what I want to do for Christ, what Christ wants me to do. Let's pray, dear Lord. Just thank you so much for this morning, and we just pray as we come to the table this morning that you would help us to think about you, that we would be thinking Christ less of us that as we make these decisions in our life, we wouldn't be thinking, "What me, me, me. We'd be thinking, you, you, you. It's so easy to become selfish, so easy to become self-centered, so easy to slip into sin. Lord, I just pray we would look at ourselves and say, am I living my life for you? Or am I living my life for me? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.